sing with me now. Sha la 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 my oh my look like the boy too shy ain't gonna pod the cast. <laughs> Sha la 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 ain't that sad ain't it a shame too bad he's gonna pod the cast. Whoa whoa. <laughs> 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 I was saying to you beforehand that uh, I think that every song in this movie, pretty much you could do uh, a good podcast song version. I was really spoiled for choice. That's good. Back to movies with songs in them again. I know we could do like, you know, podcasts below. (laughs) Thought a long time about Le podcast, le podcast. <laughs> yeah, I was kind of hoping you'd do that one, actually. <laughs> do we need to start over with me doing that one? No, it's okay. <laughs> this is a good movie. Yep. We could talk about it if you want. Let's do that. Little Mermaid. For about 90 minutes. Well, for about two hours. <laughs> and then we could pay a man to edit it down to 90 minutes <laughs> if you wanted. And then we could share that conversation with everyone if you wanted. Okay. I think we should do that. Okay. (laughs) Hello, everybody, and welcome to Me, Mom, and the Mouse, a podcast about the joy of watching cartoons with your family. We're watching every film in the Disney animated canon and talking about how it was made, what it means, and why we love it or don't. My name is Isaac Coleman, and I'm joined as always by my mother, Rue Coleman. Hello, Isaac. How's it going? Going pretty well today. How's it going with you? Uh, it's very busy, but it's going pretty well. Very busy indeed. Heard this the week of uh, Yom Kippur, sandwiched between two other major Jewish holidays, and we're starting a brand new miniseries, and it's fine. Yeah. It's fine and it's good. <laughs> and we do want to give a special shout out to our editor, who is also good, Brad Murray at Oak Studios. Thank you for all the work that you do out in the sun where you slave away. Well, we are devoting full time to floating (laughs) podcast, the sea (laughs) this week on the program. We are starting the Disney Renaissance with 1989's The Little Mermaid, directed by John Musker and Ron Clements. Listening back to the uh, Great Mouse Detective episode recently, I'm pretty sure I mixed that up a few times. I think I probably said Ron Musker and John Clements. It's very hard. (laughs) It's possible you did. It's easy to remember the last names, but John and Ron, that's that's which tricky. goes with which. Yeah, I get it. Exactly. You gotta play pick and mix. <laughs> These are, of course, the directors of The Great Mouse Detective, which we talked about previously. Uh, but today we're talking about The Little Mermaid. And Mom, what does The Little Mermaid mean to you? Well, this was, as I mentioned before, the first movie of the Disney animated canon that I got to see in the theaters But it is also the first movie I remember getting to see in the theaters because, well, I believe I had gotten to see one or two movies in theaters when I was very young. I don't remember them at all. So this one, I was old enough to actually remember going to the theaters. So it was a big deal. I remember it feeling like, oh, Disney is good now. (laughs) (laughs) The, the attitude of everyone was also the attitude that we had, you know. Oh, it's a good one. We're Disney doing good movies again. <laughs> we had the soundtrack. We got the VHS right away. So since this movie came out, it has been a big part of my life. My little sister used to watch it like every single day. She watched this movie. She went through a phase where she watched this movie 
as little kids do. They actually got to a point where I got sick of it because it was she watched it so many times. Yeah. But, you know, you take a little break from it. You're OK again. It's fun. It's funny that in my lifetime, I also got to experience Hey, Disney's Good Again with a Musker mm-hmm. and Clements movie with Princess and the Frog. <laughs> And then Tangled really cemented it. But I do remember Princess of the Frog, people were like, they're they're on the right path. Oh, it, starting with a princess movie again, apparently, is uh, the way to go. Oh, yeah. The Disney revival is absolutely stop trying interesting things. Let's just do the Renaissance again. Like, yeah. Let's get all the same people back and do it again. And then they did. And we'll get to that. But that's much later. Tell me all about the theater experience. You get any snacks? Oh, no, I'm sure we didn't get any snacks. Like getting to go to the theater was (laughs) was enough, you know, because we hardly ever went. Pretty sure what happened was like one of my sister's friends invited us to go to the theater to see it with them. And my parents were like having to talk about, you know, is it okay? Should we let them go? And so then I'm pretty sure it was just me and my middle sister then who went with her friend and their family to go see the movie. So not even my parents the first time. It was good. (laughs) What this movie means to me, by and large, uh, the story I like to tell about my experience with this movie is that I was terrified of it. (laughs) Yeah, this is probably one of those ones we let you watch and you got terrified and had nightmares and we were like, well, let's not do that again. (laughs) Well, I remember even more specifically, you let me watch it. I was terrified and had nightmares specifically at the end when Ursula is big. Yep. Which is very scary by kids standards. It's it's a little intense. Yeah. And so then I specifically remember we would watch the movie, but then we would just skip like the movie ended, (laughs) you know, when when Ariel gets her voice back. And I think we would just not watch the rest of it or maybe you would skip to the very end. But what's funny is that I remember like knowing that you were doing that because I still had like a traumatic memory of Big Ursula that scared me, but I was appreciative, even though I knew exactly <laughs> what you were doing. Yeah, I was like, good, I don't want to see Big Ursula. And then eventually I was old enough to watch it the whole way through and it was good. Mm-hmm. It's like, I understand that a lot of people, you know, as I and I were too old, but for a lot of people, Finding Nemo starts with the mom already dead. <laughs> like a lot of a lot of people will just like skip, you know, on the DVD that first scene and go straight to, you know, when the title pops up. Yeah, that's a lot easier skipping on a DVD or a Blu-ray than what we had for Little Mermaid for even when you were little was a VHS as well. Mm-hmm. And a truly a clamshell because clams because under the sea because clams. Yes, yes. We had the we had a different clamshell when I was growing up, but the one we had with you um, actually had like a intro thing with Jody Benson on it. I don't know if you even remember that because we used to try to keep the the VHSs like queued up at the beginning of the movie after all the trailers and and intro things. But they had a, an intro thing with her. Maybe like if I found that on YouTube, I'd be like, oh, of course, <laughs> maybe buried in the deep nostalgia. Right. But I have seen this movie so much. It is one where, you know, just watching it last night, it's like, oh, all of these movements are familiar to Mm -hmm. me. All of these line readings like very much imprinted on the brain. It's not not a top tier Renaissance film for me. I'm a little cold on it. Uh, I have some problems with it that we'll talk about, but it's obviously great. Mm -hmm. And really, the music carries every problem with this movie for me. 
And I feel like when I when we were watching it, I felt like I just wanted to quote along with the whole thing. <laughs> right. Which we haven't had happen for a while. <laughs> Sing along, quote along. Yes. On, on my favorite lines, of course, not every single line, but. No, definitely. And that's the thing. It's like watching this uh, when we watched it a couple nights ago, I was like, uh, I don't love this movie. But then I, I had to like force myself uh, and I don't, you know, truly love this movie, but I had to like mm-hmm. force myself to remember, though, the standards of the bronze era, you know, <laughs> which you took a break in between. It's like this is a movie like it's a functional movie. It's pretty good for what we've been watching. Yeah. And watching it, I was like just so many of the little animation techniques. that It's like, oh, so good. It's not uneven. And the the facial expressions and the movements are actually natural looking. <laughs> yes. Did you see that the statistic that supposedly they drew one million bubbles for this movie? I did see that, that they basically outsourced that to another animation studio who just drew all the bubbles. And it's like, OK, I mean, Yes, attention to detail, but you could have photocopied some of those. I'd have been okay. <laughs> no. <laughs> the the guy who was in charge of the bubbles and said that one million bubbles were drawn was uh, Mark Dindle, who uh, was an effects animator. So he was the type of guy who would draw bubbles, who worked on Fox and the Hound, Black Cauldron, Great Mouse Detective, left to do Brave Little Toaster, came back for Oliver and Company, and uh, then the Renaissance. <laughs> so he he has actually been involved with like all of the movies that we've talked about. Um, and I believe he was also involved with the uh, uh, Great Mouse Detective uh, computer assisted animation scene. All righty. And he drew one million bubbles on this. <laughs> We're already talking about it, but let's go ahead and get into some of the uh, background of this movie. Yeah, I want to get this out of the way on the bronze era. We did a lot of history. We often would have far more history than synopsis, uh, in part because the history of those movies is really interesting and rarely talked about. And going through the synopsis was an excruciating (laughs) thing. Neither of us wanted to do, (laughs) especially with with Oliver and company, for example, not going to do that as much with the Renaissance, because these I feel like and part of the reason I've been a little reluctant to get to this series is because these are like possibly the most discussed movies of all time. Yeah. I mean, it's like these and the Star Wars is <laughs> in terms of like everybody who has even a passing interest in movies probably knows a lot about this. So I think we're very much going to do Cliff's Notes on the history, on the history of most of these Renaissance movies, because there is so much we could. to. I mean, there are whole documentary films about the making of these movies. And so we're not going to do that. Uh, uh, We're more interested in talking about what these movies mean to us. And so that's really what we're going to be doing here. Uh, I just say that in case somebody's like, why didn't they mention X? Yeah, because we're going to do 30 minutes of background and, and that's it. And that's okay. That's what our podcast is. There's I promise you, if you want to listen to a podcast about the Little Mermaid, There are podcasts that will serve this need. You could listen about you could listen to podcast episodes about The Little Mermaid until your death, no matter how (laughs) old you are now. I guarantee that could be the case. We already talked about the genesis of The Little Mermaid in the Oliver and Company episode. 
which was Clements discovered the book, thought it would be interesting, pitched it to Katzenberg at the gong show, initially got turned down. And then later Katzenberg was like, ah, let's do it. Yeah. Just because he wanted to make a movie every year and he wanted to do something after Oliver and Company. And this seemed like as good a bet as any. So Musker and Clements uh, turn his initial treatment into a script. Uh, they are the credited writers on this movie. I believe the only credited writers, which is unusual for Disney at the time, that the directors would also be the writers. Yeah. And they were working on Oliver and Company, which, remember, was a big financial success, but nobody really liked it. Even Katzenberg, it was his baby, and even he was kind of like, eh. But it made them go, okay, well, you know, we will do another movie. We'll continue with the Little Mermaid project. And there was a guy they worked with on the Oliver and Company he like wrote the words for one song who is Howard Ashman and Howard Ashman was recommended because several of the people they were bringing on to Disney animation, most notably vice president uh, Peter Schneider had been involved with Broadway. Mm-hmm. Schneider specifically had been involved in a show called little shop of horrors. He had been the show's stage manager uh-huh. and little shop of horrors was the songs were done by, and it was directed by Howard Ashman. For the songs, he worked with a guy named Alan Menken. Uh, And Howard Ashman was uh, a notable Broadway guy. Little Shop of Horrors is his most notable work. He also wrote the screenplay for the excellent Frank Oz movie version, one of my absolute favorite movie musicals. And uh, he was like, hey, let's, let's bring him on to do some of the music for this because this is credited to different people. I think the most credible source I've seen credited it to Ashman himself, maybe Schneider. Of course, Katzenberg takes credit for it. Katzenberg loves taking credit (laughs) for things. If you do any research on this movie, you'll see a lot of stuff where it's like Katzenberg did this. And then you look at the source and it's Jeffrey Katzenberg. So, you know, (laughs) you always want to check the sources, folks. Like Wikipedia especially has a lot of it was all him. But The thing about Eisner Katzenberg and kind of the thing that I think is crucial to the entire Renaissance era is that Eisner especially liked formulas Mm -hmm. and he talked about he did have creative instincts, but he also talked about movies as formulas where he was like, we want stars who are this popular, but not this popular. Like he would literally have a salary range where it's like we want people we can get for this salary range and the movie has to hit this beat and this beat and this beat and have this element and this element and this element which at first was very successful but he had the problem that all of these disney studio heads seemed to end up having where he was just like and then we do that forever Uh and people are like times have changed 10 years have passed and he's like nope same thing yeah The formulas only work for so long. Definitely. And so, but of course, like what he needs to really commit to animation is a formula. And this is the movie that establishes that formula. Yes, it does. Watching it again, I forgot that like, I mean, I hadn't consciously thought about the fact that Tangled basically takes whole scenes from this like even the first kiss being on a boat like it's it's (laughs) kind of insane how much this movie just becomes the template um and the main kind of element that was figured out was again credited to many people this revelation but uh, ashman quite possibly or schneider said these movies should be broadway musicals like in trying to figure out 
what is the template for a Disney movie in late 80s, early 90s? Like, how do we adapt these very classical, you know, feeling type movies to the modern day? Like, what's the hook? And, you know, they, they try various things like Great Mouse Detective. You know, well, we can't replicate what if animal version of a classic story. <laughs> Oliver and Company, we can't replicate what if, well, animal version of a classic story, but also like bad, cool mm-hmm. dog with sunglasses whatever that movie has going on in it. Like (laughs) none of those things made any sense versus like Broadway musical. Like these, we need to go back to music in a big way and we shouldn't be doing pop songs like Oliver and company. We should be doing songs that uh, really tell the story. And so when Ashman gets brought on, which it took some convincing because Howard Ashman was a gay man, an openly gay man. And he was very concerned about how he would be treated at Disney. And apparently he was uh, happy with that, but he was very worried about that at first. They finally convinced him it will be a safe place for him to work, which is always nice to know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he comes on, he brings Alan Menken on with him because he's like, this is my partner. I want to work with him on the songs. And Menken does the score and he writes the music for the songs and Ashman writes the lyrics. Right. Um, But because he was a screenwriter and because he was a director, he also contributed a lot to the story. Even though he didn't know anything about animation, he he knew a lot about story and he made a lot of changes to Musker and Clement's script, which is why he gets credited as a producer because something something legal reasons they had to credit him as more than just a songwriter but they didn't want to give him a story credit so for example he goes you have this originally was a lobster character named clarence who seems like he was kind of a zazu type character right where he's like oh no don't do things and he was like this should be a funnier character very british butler he had the idea to make him a jamaican character Uh, because he basically wanted to write a big Jamaican song in Under the Sea. (laughs) He had the idea of making Ursula into, uh, quote, from Disney War by James B. Stewart, a raspy-voiced, overweight octopus who sashays through the film in a sleeveless black gown, a character modeled on Divine, the, I'm going to say cross-dressing, star of Hairspray, Female Trouble, and other cult movie hits far removed from the Disney canon. To read a little more from the book, Katzenberg was dazzled by Ashman's knowledge of theater and music, especially his familiarity with the Disney canon. It seemed that everything Katzenberg had struggled to learn in his long hours in the Disney archives, Ashman already knew. (laughs) Ashman naturally dominated the process. Animators often saw him hovering over Mencken at the piano, showing him how to adapt the melodies to his lyrics. And so he really makes a lot of contributions to the story. Um, And even beyond just story, like he is the one who says, hey, you should cast Jodie Benson in part because he'd done another musical, Smile, that was a massive failure that she was the star of. And he was like, well, maybe (laughs) this was like a make good in part. And he really liked working with her. Mm -hmm. You can see some great behind the scenes footage of him like coaching her as she's singing Part of Your World. Mm -hmm. Uh, And clearly they had a really uh, great working relationship. And so a lot of the good of this movie gets credited to Ashman. And I think one thing in in listening to interviews with Ashman and reading them, he clearly was a guy who thought a lot about formula as well, maybe in a slightly more positive way. Or maybe, you know, you just think formula is positive. But like 
With Little Shop of Horrors especially, it sounds like he had really thought about what are the elements of a Broadway musical that you can take and put them like in a B-movie. Yeah. And he talked about like, well, you have the I Want song, which is something that's green in Little Shop of Horrors. And you need like, it's good to have this villainous temptation song, which is uh, 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 Feed Me, which of course in this is Poor Unfortunate Souls. Like uh-huh. he really seemed to have a knack for like boiling the elements of a Broadway musical that really worked down to the bare essentials and then being able to adapt them into another genre. The B-horror movie with Little Shop, the Disney movie with Little Mermaid. Mm-hmm. He and Mencken, they write these five songs and they really structure the movie around these songs. And Eisner and Katzenberg loved these guys. They weren't sure about the movie, but quote from Disney War, as soon as he heard Under the Sea, Eisner was convinced Ashman and Mencken had created a song that would be a hit on its own, whatever the fate of the movie. Which is what they were looking for always. We need hit songs. Absolutely. And it was. Roy E. Disney was captivated by the undersea theme. And skipping ahead a bit, Katzenberg too felt mounting enthusiasm about the quality of the film. Oliver had been a first step, but no one had ever approached an animated film as though it were a Broadway musical. Schneider had been right that a musical needed a unifying score and lyrics. Mermaid felt fresh, original, and exciting. Still, Katzenberg cautioned that the commercial potential of a film about a mermaid was probably limited by its appeal to young girls. Yeah, they're like, this is a girl movie. No one else will like it. And then it makes like 70 percent more money than Oliver and Company. It becomes after home video and merchandising and everything, the most profitable film of all time. Yeah, but girls, though, I mean, the merchandising, I remember being everywhere, too. We had some of the Little Mermaid dolls when we were growing up. And there's a lot of stories of Katzenberg and Eisner meddling with this. Famously, Katzenberg wanted to cut part of your world after an initial screening where uh, kids were like fidgeting in their seats and, and running around and they were bored during the sequence. The animators convinced him to wait until they did another screening where the sequence was fully finished and colored. And then it went over very well because, of course, it did. That is I mean, it's a it's a great song. It's a great moment. That sequence was Animated by Glenn Keane, who is also the lead animator on Ariel. We've talked about Glenn Keane in the Fox and the Hound episode, but one of the greatest character animators who ever lived. And I think he really brought his all to part of your world, which is such I mean, it's just an incredible sequence. And if you cut that, you know, the movie is is (laughs) pure garbage. (laughs) He did succeed in cutting Fathoms Below. The song that you hear just a little bit of at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. Uh, but Ashman really loved it, wanted to have the whole thing in. It was going to be a huge underwater sequence with that song. Ah. And it was just too expensive and you kind of don't need. I, I actually kind of agree. Like, you don't need that for the movie to work. It, it's fine as it is. Yeah, it doesn't need to be longer, but I do like that song. Definitely, definitely. And it got restored for, of course, this movie not to skip ahead to sequel spinoffs, but it had a Broadway musical version which restored that song. Yeah, of course, because you have to have longer, more music and longer songs in the Broadway show. Right. And because in part because Ashman was dead at that point. Mm-hmm. And so when they brought Mankin on to help with the Broadway score, he was like, I want to restore my dead friend's song that he loved that got cut out of the movie. Of course. Of course. 
And I do want to say, though, you know, we talk a lot about Katzberg and Eisner having bad ideas because <laughs> they often do because we, you know, more or less try to tell the truth here. And that's the <laughs> truth. But Eisner made a couple of suggestions that might actually be kind of good. One that's interesting is that originally Ariel apparently defeated Ursula, which is one thing I thought watching the movie like I wish Ariel would defeat Ursula. A suggestion Eisner made that I think is full on great was he was like, it doesn't make sense that Sebastian is working with King Triton at the beginning of the movie, but then switches to be on Ariel's side for the second half. And he insisted on adding the little scene between the two of them right after Ariel loses her voice, which is good. Yeah. That scene, I think, makes the movie better and the movie would be much more annoying if you didn't have that moment where he's like, be miserable for the rest of your life. Right. I think that makes what is a pretty unbelievable turn like you you totally buy it because of that moment Mm -hmm. Uh, as far as animation this was the last movie to use the xerox method they were also given a much bigger budget because of what i just read about everyone involved all the execs were like wait this one might actually be good and not bad (laughs) and it might be popular and so they they really gave it a lot of money and resources. But this was the last movie made with the Xerox method. After this, they would use the cap system, uh, which for the next movie, what that meant was they would still draw the animation on cells, but then they would ink and color it with computers. Mm-hmm. And eventually it would mean that they were just drawing everything in computers. So this is technically the last like fully hand-drawn movie. And it is fully hand-drawn. Of course, we use the computer-assisted animation Uh, You could definitely see it in a few scenes, but it's still the computer assisted animation where they're tracing CGI drawings, not putting CGI uh, into the movie yet. Mm -hmm. And I I also have to say, like, just Great Mouse Detective, Oliver and Company and this. Yeah. Musker and Clements. One thing I think they definitely understood as directors is where and how to use the computer assisted animation. So it feels like a natural part of the movie you're watching. True. And helps like emphasizes it and the story, you know, watching this because we're thinking about these movies so much and I'm taking careful notes. I could be like, oh, that's the computer assisted animation versus Oliver and Company where it's like, oh, this car looks like a completely different universe. (laughs) And I'm like knocked right out of the film. Right. And of course, the animation is uh, exceptional. You know, the animators had a little more freedom. Obviously, you know, all the sequences are great. The character animation in this is just so good. It really is. I think that's what even in the bronze era, we talked about like the Disney animators, I think, were just unmatched in terms of the powers of character design and animation. Even watching the Bluth movies around this time, by and large, a lot of them have better animation in a lot of ways. But I think in terms of the acting, Mm -hmm. you just couldn't beat Disney. And you see so much of that in this movie. And again, it carries what is, in my opinion, not the best script But with the great animation and the great music and the great performances, I think it all works out. And this movie was a massive critical and commercial success. It was the return of Disney. And of course, it allowed them to create a formula that they would continue to use for additional movies, which is broadly like these should be Broadway musicals. They should hit the beats of the Broadway musical. They should have the I Want song. They should have a big fun Villain that can balance being funny and menacing, you know, a lot of this stuff, yep. uh, which works to great effect for a while. 
I thought it was very interesting watching it this time, how I was noticing kind of the risks they were taking with the animation, just with the story, right? This story has to be underwater. So we have to do all these underwater effects sequences and stuff, you know, they weren't playing it safe with this one where, you know, just doing people on land. And then even when you do get to being on land, Ariel doesn't have a voice. So she has to express all of her emotions with just the drawing. And I think they did a great job. They did actually go back to using some live action reference in this movie again, which is probably a good idea. I can't help but remember that horrible walk sequence in Fox and the Hound. (laughs) 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 If they'd actually recorded a person walking, it wouldn't have looked that bad. (laughs) Well, they actually did. Unfortunately, the actor they hired in that case was six ferrets in a burlap sack. But yes, the live action reference for Ariel uh, is Sherry Stoner, who is a fascinating person. She was a friend of uh, the Brave Little Toaster herself, Deanna Olivers. They worked together at the Groundlings and they would continue to work together afterwards. Uh, They screen wrote the bizarre Casper movie I talked about in our Toaster episode. Uh, along with J.J. Abrams, still insane. (laughs) And she took a character she developed at the Groundlings for probably her most famous voice role, which is Slappy Squirrel in Animaniacs. Yep. Uh, And she was the live-action reference for this, uh, and she did a really great job. Like, there's so much, you know, fun behind-the-scenes stuff, and you can really see how her acting helped bring a lot of character you know, into this character. As much as they were brilliant character animators, she also truly brings a lot to the performance. Um, And she had to do some, like, crazy stuff. Like, uh, the stuff they had to do with her hair to make it seem like her hair was underwater is very impressive. Now, do you want to take us through the cast of this here movie? Sure. We will start, of course, with Jodie Benson as Ariel, who we've already mentioned some stuff about, was on Broadway, Uh, After this, basically, is Ariel forever. She also does some voices for Pixar, like Tour Guide Barbie in Toy Story 2, which is a really fun role. I believe she's all the Barbies in all the Toy Story movies, is is what I saw. I couldn't remember if she was Barbie in Toy Story 3, but she definitely is in all the... In Toy Story 2, she's all the Barbies. Can't confirm she is Barbie in Toy Story 3. Okay, yep. Tour Guide Barbie is the one where I think of her being the funniest. (laughs) Oh, I can't keep smiling. Yes. (laughs) She's a very accomplished voice actor. Yes. Both at Disney, uh, where she's done a lot of small parts, and outside of Disney. She's great. But this was her first voice acting role. Yes, because again, she she came from Broadway. Ashman brought her and knew she would be good, and she totally is. And her singing voice is perfect, and she managed to... Uh, nail Ariel's speaking voice really well. So then we have Christopher Daniel Barnes as Eric, which you've already heard him because he voiced Prince Charming in the Cinderella sequels. (laughs) Yeah, and Jodie Benson is also in a lot of these bad direct-to-video sequels, but... Uh, I think basically, though, she's just like, Disney calls, I'm gonna say yes. (laughs) Well, why wouldn't you? Right? Uh, But yeah, Christopher Daniel Barnes is is also kind of just a voice actor. Uh Uh, Not to downplay that. I mean, he's a good voice actor. And he he mostly is like when you just want, you know, your hero, your heroic character. Like, yeah, that's what he's there for. And that's what he does here. Yep. Samuel E. Wright as Sebastian the Crab. 
Um, he just died this year, I saw. Yeah, in May 2021. Yeah. And he also was Sebastian and everything. And his last movie was the direct-to-video Little Mermaid prequel, which is unfortunate. Yep. We will hear him again in another movie. Yep. And he was also Mufasa in the Broadway musical of The Lion King. Right. Which is awesome. Yeah, that is cool. We have Pat Carroll as Ursula. The best. Yes. Oh, she's amazing. I think of her first from the 1965 television movie of Rodgers and Hammerstein, Cinderella, where she plays one of the uh, evil stepsisters. <laughs> this was a role they spent a long time casting for and kind of settled for Pat Carroll, which is amazing because she is one of the great villain performances. And when you hear her, it's just like, well, this is this is perfect. She captures the energy of divine who the character is based on visually but also makes it her own she has such a perfect confident calculated menace yeah although i think maybe my favorite performance it's hard to say of pat carroll's uh, who did other voice roles might be grandma in the garfield specials yeah she does a good job as grandma there too I think the Christmas special, especially where she gets to be super funny and silly and do that big laugh. But then she also has to have the moment where she's like, Garfield grandpa died, which should be the dumbest, <laughs> like most saccharine melodramatic moment. But then it, I, I think she yeah, Pat Carroll rules. She does. She's amazing. She's also a voice on a pretty funny voice on Tangled the series. Oh, yeah. Old Lady Crowley. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's see. We have Buddy Hackett as Scuttle, who was in a lot of comedy movies like The Love Bug and Music Man and Mad, 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 Mad World. And he just has a silly voice, so they just use his voice. <laughs> I guess they thought he sounded like a seagull. Yeah, this is, weirdly, for being a movie of the Katzenberg era, not a lot of big names in this movie. We really are doing more classical Disney casting in that sense of, like, Let's just get, you know, who has an interesting voice? Yeah, we have Kenneth Mars as King Triton. Mostly the things I've seen him in, he's doing a silly voice. So I never would have recognized that that's whose voice that was because he's the inspector in Young Frankenstein and he's a the weird character in The Producers, the um, the Nazi screenwriter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's doing silly voices in both of those. Right. I would never have. You know, picked him for King Triton. <laughs> I know, it's very, uh, very strange. <laughs> but he is good. But he is very good. I mean, King Triton's voice had just right. One of the funniest ones I thought was Ben Wright as Grimsby. And he was Roger in 101 Dalmatians and the father wolf Rama in Jungle Book, which was like, what, one line. Wow. And they, they didn't even know he had been those characters when they hired him for this movie. <laughs> That's funny. He had to tell them, you know, this is not my first time doing a Disney movie. <laughs> right. They just picked, they were just like, yeah, you'd be great as Grimsby. And he's like, yeah, I was Roger. And they were like, what? <laughs> <laughs> this was his last movie, though. Yes, he passed away shortly after it. But it's a good one to go out on. Definitely a good one to go out on. But yeah, if you do 101 Dalmatians, you're not exactly a young man in 1989. No. I know I'm going to butcher his last name, but... You want me to take it? Take it. Uh, René Aubergenois. As Louis the Cook, who is also does a great job. Uh, I mainly remember him as Odo from Star Trek Deep Space Nine. <laughs> 
but he's just in a ton of TV stuff. Like he'll be in a few episodes of this show and a few episodes of that show. And I feel like I've seen him in a lot of things. Yeah, he's even in Wander Over Yonder. He he is in a lot of things. Yeah, he does a lot of good voices. And by the way, he's American is the funny thing, because when you're like <laughs> René Aubergenois is Louis, you're like, well, that must be his natural accent. No, he's from New York, but obviously they brought him on to do a French accent. I mean, I believe his parents uh, were not from America, so he presumably could hear those accents when he was growing up. Yeah, I mean, you don't have to guess too hard about where his family might have come from prior to Ellis Island. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to really question where Rene Aubergenois' ancestry might lie. <laughs> then we have Edie McClurg as Carlotta, probably most famously known for Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Carlotta being the uh, the maid that Prince Eric has, in case you, like me, did not know her name was Carlotta until you looked at the Disney wiki. <laughs> they actually do mention her name in the movie. Surprisingly, all of these characters... You know, even these more minor ones like Grimsby and Louis and Carlotta, all their names are actually mentioned in the movie for a change. There you go. And then we have a lot of big name voice actors doing super small roles. Like we got Frank Welker, Jim Cummings, Charlie Adler, Nancy Cartwright. If you know voice actors, these are names, you know, but they're all like Merman 4, you know? Right. Additional voices. Yeah. I think Frank Welker's the dog Max, like. You know, <laughs> of course, he's a dog. Man. You couldn't. Of course. Uh, he's also the shark who apparently has a name. Did you see this glut the shark? Yeah, I did see that. That's dumb. The shark was apparently going to have a bigger part than he got cut. So they cut his name. So there you go. That's pretty much the cast. Seems like we should talk about the movie then. Let's do that. The movie starts with the sea. <laughs> what a surprise. And then we see a ship. And we get the song Fathoms Below that we mentioned before. Right, which is a very Broadway thing of, you know, get the whole company to sing a big, this is who we are, this is where it is. Right. This is the male chorus song. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Here's where we are, what we're singing about. We have our first, you know, discussion of like, mer people. King Triton must be smiling on us because King Triton... Nope. He must be in a friendly type mood. You know, I can quote it. It feels like it's part of the song almost because he's like, King Triton must be in a friendly type mood. And you're like, are we going back into the song? And it's like, no, no, we're not. And this is uh, Eric's ship. And he's like, King Triton. And so then we have to explain that he's the ruler of the Mer people. This was going to be animated, but nope. Now I'm just telling you, Prince. <laughs> Prince Eric, who we realized this time, I'd never thought of this before. I assume you hadn't. Uh, it's just a princedom. Prince Eric is the ruler of this French-ish area. Yep, he just has this little... We we were joking that it's a princedom instead of a kingdom. I believe they call it a kingdom. You know, take a tour around the kingdom, whatever. This movie is not interested in explaining its world at no. all, which to be clear, I think is fine. I never want to be one of these people who's complaining about that, but it's like, how does King Triton work? How does the kingdom work? What Does he actually control the weather? What's the relation? Like, none of this ever is explained and it's not really important. No, it's not. It's it's totally fine. Yep. And we're introduced to Eric's dog, Max, and Grimsby, who's like his prime minister. He's the Zezu. Butler. Yeah, I don't, you know. 
I think his official position is Zazu. Zazu, yeah. <laughs> but yes, he's like, oh. Grimsby. Yes, I'm Grimsby. On the ship, they're fishing, and one of the fish escapes back into the water. And then we kind of follow the fish swimming around. And we get the title, The Little Mermaid. Classy. Now we're underwater, so we have all like water ripples and stuff. And um, we uh, are seeing fish first, and then all of a sudden we're seeing mer people, and we get a big crescendo in the music. Yeah, we talk a lot about uh, Ashman because he had the most impact on this movie. But Alan Menken is, of course, great. He will continue to be great for many Disney movies. And his score here, you know, you get the little do 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 for it's it sounds very, you know, underwater, very much. You feel the yearning for for something else. And I was struck by how many backgrounds they make for this movie, especially compared to the Bronze Era and how. You know, they aren't like the transcendent Sleeping Beauty backgrounds or anything, but they are good. And like with this arena, this big coliseum or whatever, where we're going to perform this song. Yep. We don't see it again, I think, this arena specifically. And there's a lot of backgrounds that make it up. Like there's, you know, a wide outside shot and a wide inside shot and then close up on King Triton's little box and then Uh the stage itself. Like... Again, they gave him some money. That's nice. Money. It, it actually makes the movie better, surprisingly. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not so surprisingly. It does help. Yeah. Especially if you want to set an expansive underwater sea world, yep. you know. It helps if you can draw that. <laughs> so we have a little seahorse announcer who announces King Triton, who comes. Yes, this thing is named Harold. Yes, of course. And it sucks. It's a little snitch horse. That's what it is. <laughs> Ooh, tattletale seahorse. <laughs> and then Sebastian is announced, the court composer, and he... He gets a kazoo fanfare. Very important. He does. He gets a little kazoo fanfare. <laughs> and this is going to be his big concert. And the song begins, The Daughters of Triton. Yeah, I don't think this would be a very good show. <laughs> I mean... I was assuming that this is like the opener. We're going to introduce the characters (laughs) who are the daughters of Triton. And then maybe we're going to have other performances by, you know, maybe they each get their own solo piece later after they have their big opener. But we don't get to find out what happens. I saw one interpretation of this where maybe this is supposed to be like, you know, Ariel's being introduced to everyone, right? Whatever you call that, the like... Uh, it's her come out ball kind of a thing. Yeah, exactly. So maybe, but yeah. yeah. Sebastian is introduced. He is... Sebastian is the court composer slash Triton's right-hand man slash gopher slash, you know. And the song ends when they're... They, after they all sing and they're like, and, you know, here's the youngest, Ari, because <gasps> she's not there. And I actually had a piano music book of music from Disney movies. So it had like songs from Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin and several of those things. And it literally did end like that in my piano book too. Like it didn't come to any sort of closure. It just stopped at every, it's over. (laughs) (laughs) Which always kind of cracked me up. It's like, why would I ever play this song? It's incomplete. <laughs> you should at least give me the complete version. By the way, another thing about Sebastian, I forgot to mention, is that something you don't think about a lot, Sebastian is his last name. Oh, that's right. They do 
They introduce him by his full name. Now you and I are both trying to find it. I'm trying to remember it, actually. I can only remember the last part of it. Ignatius Crustaceus Sebastian. Okay. His full name is Horatio Philonius Ignatius Crustaceus Sebastian. That's right. What if he was called Ignatius for the whole movie? (laughs) Yeah, it's better that he's called Sebastian. And this is, again, one thing Musker and Clements have shown themselves to be really good at so far, maybe just out of necessity with like the constraints they're working with, is something I talked about a lot with Mouse Detective. Very like tight storytelling and having scenes do a lot of things at once. This movie gets a little more breathing room. But the original version of this scene was going to be backstage with Sebastian and the other sisters. And then like Ariel doesn't show up to rehearsal. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was going to be how we get into the next bit. But then they're like, wait, this scene should also introduce King Triton and like the Mer world. And we can get it all done at once. Which is just smart. Yeah, it is. And so then, of course, where is Ariel? So we see where she is. She's off exploring some sunken ships with her friend Flounder, who is not a Flounder. (laughs) His name is just Flounder. He is not a fish found in nature. Just just be aware. (laughs) He's the fattest, most (laughs) triangular fish. (laughs) I love that we're just roasting Flounder. I gotta say, all right, it's too many animal sidekicks in this movie, and Flounder is the one you cut. Does he do anything? Not so much. He does help when she's trying to get to the wedding barge at the end. He pulls the barrel she's hanging on to because she can't swim because she's a human and never learned how to swim as a human. Right. Which, I'll be honest, doesn't make a lot of sense because I feel like she could still swim with legs, but anyway. Yeah, even, yeah, that's the thing, like, you know, you could just cut him and it's it's not even that he's annoying. Like, I'm not going to do the thing that I do with, you know, the cricket, which shall not be named uh, or Thumper, where I just joke about how terrible. Like, it's just like, why are you here? You're just like a little kid. Oh, I didn't mention his voice actor because he was just a basically a child it's just actor, some kid actor, young, yeah. young man. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, I think it's so she can have an underwater best friend. Great. Who's a dumb fat fish. So she finds some stuff, of course, as she's swimming around in the ship, a fork and a pipe. And she's got a little bag she carries things in. And then there's a shark and we have a big old shark chase. And this is the shark whose name is unimportant. (laughs) Glut. Yes. But uh, she escapes. She goes up to Scuttle. Yep. Who's a seagull and who I do find annoying. (laughs) He is kind of. Scuttle was never my favorite. As good as Buddy Hackett's voice is, as fun as it is, the character of Scuttle is a little annoying. Yes, but he has a couple moments I like, and at least he seems like a good guy. Mm -hmm. He's not actively hindering anything. He's just a moron. But he does have some very important bits. I definitely like this character more as a kid than I do now. Yeah. And he tells her the wrong name for things, and we really kind of drag it out. (laughs) But we have to have these. This is like these jokes are going to come back where he tells her the wrong things, wrong names for things and what they're used for is wrong. And mentions that the uh, pipe, he calls it a snarfblatt, is for music. And Ariel's like, oh, no, I forgot about the concert. So she is like, my father's going to kill me. (laughs) Wild that she forgot about it. Not that she skipped out on it, but somehow forgot. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> her own cotillion. Uh, apparently it wasn't that important to her. And she apparently missed most of the rehearsals too. So, because, you know, Sebastian has that little aside. And now we're introduced to the villains of the piece where we meet Flotsam and Jetsam who are eels who are watching Ariel for Ursula. And she can apparently use her magic to see what they see. Let me get a good little villain monologue where, again, not the most well-defined motivation, but basically Ursula would like to rule the sea and have all the power of Triton. And she's like, this daughter who's an idiot seems like she might be useful in a in a scheme at some point. She may be the key to Triton's undoing with her eyes glowing. <laughs> Of course, Ariel is indeed in trouble with her father. Mm-hmm. Triton hates humans quite reasonably. Yep. This, I think, is my biggest problem with the movie. Ariel is very stupid. <laughs> and I always had a little trouble with her as a character. And admittedly, you know, there are people who connect very strongly to Ariel, right? This is where I have to be like, I've never been a teenage girl. Yep. We find out here that she's 16. What I want from this movie is I want to like disagree a lot more with Triton and be a lot more on Ariel's side. And instead, I often come away from their arguments being like, Triton's kind of making some good points. Yeah. Like he's like, humans kill fish. And it's like, that's true. Your best friend is a fish, Ariel. Does that not bother you? Like, you know, Eric would definitely kill Flounder. He wouldn't even give it a second thought. It's just like... And I've always kind of interpreted it as this is a movie about a teenage girl written exclusively by older men, (laughs) Uh, not a single woman uh, involved in like writing or directing uh, or creating this movie, (laughs) which maybe, you know, again, but I do know like women who who connected with this character uh, strongly as young girl. And the excuse you could be like, well, the reason she's so stupid is because she's a teenager. And it's like, I can't disagree with that. Uh, I had my own more than my fair share of idiotic teenage rebellion. But at the same time, like, well, I don't really enjoy following that character in a movie. This is the same problem I'll have with Musker and Clement's Treasure Planet Mm -hmm. later. You know, it's like, yeah, this is a pretty accurate depiction of a whiny teenager, i.e. something that sucks. <laughs> but uh, that's that's just my uh, interpretation. If you disagree, that's that's just fine. What do you think, Mom? Ariel, stupid? Pretty stupid. <laughs> I did side more with Ariel when I was younger. Like, I was pretty much on her side. But the older I've gotten, as a parent, I'm like, oh, he is... King Triton is totally in the right here. Except for in the way he expresses himself most of the time. Like he doesn't listen to Ariel enough to be able to speak to her in a way that she will listen, if that makes sense. Right. He doesn't explain, he he doesn't explain himself in a way that she can understand, but yes, he is correct that you need to be more careful around humans and they are not safe for people like us. (laughs) And You know, we prepared this big, you know, party for you or this big musical that you're in as the star, like, yeah, really bent over backwards to do this thing for you. And you were a jerk to me. You were a jerk to Sebastian. You were a jerk to all of your sisters. I mean, you have let everybody down. (laughs) It's a jerk move. And you were off, you know, collecting trinkets or whatever. Which, of course, she doesn't say. But Flounder 
is trying to defend Ariel, but then he mentions a seagull and Triton knows that that she went up to the surface and... Right, and the thing is, like, Triton generally seems like a good dad. Like, to skip ahead a bit, he's fine with her dating whoever she wants as long as it's of her species. Not an unreasonable (laughs) requirement. And he does... I like that we get to see that he is tormented by the fact that he can't connect to her. And he's fine with her doing whatever. Like, he's not an overbearing Mother Gothel type. Like, you know, he's like, you can hang out and do whatever most of the time, just not when you're at a musical performance (laughs) for yourself. Like, that's, you know, I want him to be a little more unlikable, you know, which a lot of these, the later Disney movies after this, like, I want him to be the Moana dad, where the Moana dad's still a good dad, but you're like, yeah, this guy kind of sucks. You should definitely rebel against him, teenager. Yeah, where <laughs> yeah, where you feel like he's he's unreasonable. You don't feel as much like Triton is unreasonable. Yeah, <laughs> just kind of seems pretty right. And Ariel's like, well, screw you, dad. I'm going to go hang out with the sea witch. And he's like, do I even need to explain why that's a bad idea? <laughs> <laughs> right. And we, we will go ahead and put our mom status in here. Mom is dead. <laughs> and Eric's mom, dead. dead. No moms in this movie. Totally momless film. Extremely momless. So Triton and Sebastian have a little conversation where he, you know, he's upset and can't figure out what to do about Ariel. And Sebastian's like, oh, well, if she was my daughter, I'll tell you what I would do. And Triton's like, perfect. You get babysitting duty. And he's like, what? (laughs) So Sebastian sees Ariel swimming off secretly with Flounder and follows her to her secret grotto of human stuff. Her hall of trash, if you will. Exactly. And up to this point in the movie, I was like, man, am I going to be a bummer? Like, do I not <laughs> like this movie now? And then part of your world kicks in and I'm like, and I'm in it. Right, right. And the line in this one that always stuck out to me, you know, betcha on land, they understand, they don't reprimand their daughters. <laughs> And I was and I I swear I remember leaning over to my dad and going, yeah, right. (laughs) 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 Yeah, I got reprimanded and I live on the land, so you probably got reprimanded for that. (laughs) (laughs) I probably did, too. No, and this is such a powerful song. And Benson sings it so well. It starts off kind of silly, you know, with all this, like, what's the word thing? Yeah. But then, you know, it really swells to all this stuff at the end. You know, the bridge onward up to that incredible last moment and the character animation and like the camera movements the, the move they do a couple of times where, like, it's a bird's eye view and she's reaching up yeah. through the top of this circular cave. I mean, it's just truly, like, ecstatic filmmaking. It's very, it's very beautiful. So then at the end of the song, Sebastian is revealed. He, you know, gets all tangled in a bunch of the junk. And they're like, oh, you can't tell, Sebastian. You have to keep my secret. And he's like, oh, how can you be this way? <laughs> She's probably polluting the ocean, too, like with all this trash. Yeah, we were joking about the reason why that she's kind of messed up is because she hangs around with all these pollutants in the water. 
And she also, by the way, part of her collection is fish hooks, which Flounder should be like, this is outright offensive. Yeah. <laughs> that would be I, just Flounder's voice like, oh, Ariel. Ariel, this is wildly inappropriate. <laughs> Ariel, it was one thing when we were collecting dingle hoppers. I know what this is. Yeah. Don't tell me it's just heritage. <laughs> she does see, though, some some brightly colored lights up on the surface. And so, of course, she has to swim up and investigate. And there is a ship that is setting off fireworks. And so she swims closer, even though Sebastian's like, no, you are going to get Flounder killed and me and maybe <laughs> you. Right. So she swims right up to the ship and is peeking in to see what's going on. And the dog, Max, because this is, of course, Eric's ship, because, you know, we aren't going to have any other random ship. We're not computer animating a second boat. (laughs) Yeah. So Max smells Ariel and comes over and licks her. But of course, you know, he can't tell everybody, hey, there's a mermaid. He's a dog. (laughs) Thank you. And what's going on is uh, it's party. Eric's having a birthday. Seems like a pretty good party. But Grimsby's like, when are you going to get married? Yeah. He's like, yeah, probably never unless I were to meet a mermaid <laughs> or a girl who doesn't talk at all. Right. That's kind of what I'm in the market for. <laughs> it's funny, though, because uh, Prince Eric, I never really thought about it uh, too much. I mean, so Grimsby gives him this present of this life-sized or bigger than life-sized statue of Eric in a very heroic pose with a very, you know, fancy clothes on. And we almost always see Eric just wearing, you know, like your basic sailor type clothes. Like he's got a white shirt and some blue pants. Like he's not very fan. He's not a fancy guy. But Grimsby apparently wants him to be a fancier guy. (laughs) Eric is one of the few things in this movie where I'm like, I could definitely use some more character of him. I mean, by the standards of Disney princes, he might as well be, you know, Machiavelli's the prince. But right. I mean, he has so much more going for him than most of the other princes. You do feel like I could use a little more Eric. We do find out that the reason why they're on the ship is they're coming back from Glowerhaven, yes, which we know we don't even know the name of Eric's kingdom, but right. apparently some neighboring kingdom is called Glowerhaven and they have a princess and Eric didn't want to marry her. <laughs> of course, Ariel falls in love with Eric at first sight and then there's a storm and it catches the ship on fire. So now we have a big action-y sequence. That culminates with Ariel rescuing Eric, and she's so in love with him, and we have the brief reprise of Part of Your World, and the moment that made this movie a big hit, which is her on the rock with the big wave behind her. Like... (laughs) Oh, that scene you saw everywhere. One of the most iconic scenes in... Disney cinema, if not cinema, period. I mean, just. Yeah. But I what I really like about all this is how Ursula's watching and she goes, oh, it's too easy. <laughs> like, <laughs> even yeah, she's like, is. oh, this idiot. <laughs> <laughs> I she's like, oh, yeah, I got it. I thought I was going to have to make a whole diabolical scheme, but this is just sort of <laughs> handed to me on a silver platter. So then, of course, Ariel is humming a lot around around home and her sisters are like oh she's in love and they say this to king triton 
who is like, oh, who could the lucky merman be? They're all her older sisters, by the way. They are. Of course, she's the youngest. Right. So they all know what's up. And then we come to the next good song, Under the Sea. Which is the least plot relevant song, but it's obviously great. Like, it's <laughs> not really a criticism. I'm noting that because it's sort of interesting to be like, you could technically cut this out of the movie. But of course, no, you couldn't. It's true. So basically, Sebastian is like, there's no reason for you to like the human world. You need to f- see what's good about here where you are. So that's why he sings Under the Sea. And I just love how Sebastian has the power of musical numbers, right? Yes. He just gets a few, whoever's nearby. Basically, he has the power of flash mob. Yes, I agree. (laughs) He's a really good director. He just like... He's a great composer (laughs) and director, and he just works with what he's got. And no no matter what he's got, more will just come. (laughs) And then you just get the full orchestra going, and everybody's involved. It is a really fun idea for him to not just be in a musical, but to be building the musical around himself. Right? (laughs) As he's doing it. It's so good. It is very good. And yeah, this is, you know, this song won an Academy Award. It's pretty good. Yeah, it's pretty fun. And then at the end, of course, everybody is like, holds their fins out to, to Ariel where she was sitting on her rock and she's gone again. Because Flounder came and lured her away in the middle of the song. And I love Sebastian's line here. Somebody's got to nail that girl's fins to the floor. Yes, that's also <laughs> one of my favorite lines. Sebastian being put upon is is funny. And then the seahorse arrives to tell Sebastian the king wants to see him. And Sebastian, of course, fears that the king knows about how Ariel rescued a human. And I like that. You know, it's the classic at first. It's just being played for comedy of like, you know, we're misinterpreting each other's words. Sebastian thinks he knows the whole secret and Triton thinks he's just talking about her being in love with a merman. But I like that this actually leads to Sebastian giving the game away. Mm -hmm. Like it feels like, you know, just that good tight writing of like, okay, so how do we get from them misunderstanding to Triton finding the truth? What if the misunderstanding is why he finds out the truth? And I just love this scene, how Sebastian's all scared and it has things like, you know, his knees knocking and his voice cracking and everything they do in this. It's it's very good, that scene. So then we see what Flounder was luring Ariel away for and they go back to her grotto and he has given her the statue of Prince Eric. And she loves it and she's like, pretending to flirt with it. And and then her father arrives in a temper. <laughs> and again, he's like, I only have one rule. No contact between the mermaid and human worlds. And again, you're like, sounds like a pretty reasonable king. But uh, of course, this is supposed to be uh, the moment, uh, the sort of all is lost moment where he, his trident is a big laser. And he lasers all her stuff and he lasers her statue, most of all. Yep. And she's crying. And I like that you can see that he's, you know, upset, but feels like he's doing the right thing. Yeah. Even without him having words in to, to say these things, they animated him so well. You can see his emotions and what he's thinking. And of course, this leaves the opening for Flotsam and Jetsam to approach Ariel about the sea witch. And they're like, 
here's the deal. We're the creepiest things you've ever seen. We're going to take you to a person named the Sea Witch. She lives in a skull. First thing you'll notice, the ghosts of the Howling Damned will scream at you from the foyer. And try to grab you because, you know, they're not really ghosts. They're like weird little demon seaweed. And she's going to sing a song that she's going to keep interrupting to talk about how evil she is and how she's going to get you. And Ariel's like, that all sounds good to me. (laughs) Oh, it's too easy. Flounder and Sebastian were giving her a little space. And then when they see her swimming off with Flotsam and Jetsam, they follow. Even though Ariel's like, oh, just go be a tattletale again, Sebastian. Fair, fair. (laughs) And he's like, I didn't mean to. So they follow while Ariel is, you know, going off to see the sea witch. Her home does look like a skeleton sea monster. And there are creepy weed people who are trying to stop Ariel from going in because they know what's up. And then we meet Ursula. Everyone talks about how she's based visually on Divine, but I feel like, especially listening to Ashman talk about it, it's even more than that. So Divine, for anyone who doesn't know, he, and he uses he, him pronouns, are used. Um, he was a cross-dresser who was best known for uh, being in John Waters movies, which are the least kid-appropriate films, basically. I can imagine I can't even describe the plots of any of them, but... What's important to know about those movies is that they were made by people who were true outcasts from society, just kind of having fun and like owning it. And that's very much, you know, drag queens are now much more accepted uh, part of culture. You know, I mean, there's the huge television show about them. Um, Certainly not the case in Divine's day, and yet he just like had so much confidence and was so like, this is who I am, this is who I want to be. And I feel like that really informs Ursula as a character where she is an outcast, but she has such confidence. You feel like she's never making a wrong move. She always moves with such assuredness of like, I don't care what you think of me as a creepy octopus sea witch monster, like, I know I'm I'm the goods. I know I got the good stuff. She's very confident in herself. Right. And I think that that's a brilliant angle on a villain. And Poor Unfortunate Souls is my favorite villain song. I mean, Radigan is got to be my favorite Disney villain overall. And I love his song. But this is a better song. It's a great song. I love it. I love it. And this is not quite my favorite scene. I thought this was going to be my favorite scene. It's so close I've been going back and forth. I don't think it quite is. Like almost any musical number in this, you could pick as your favorite and I'd be like, that's valid. But this one's a great musical number. And like I said, we had the the soundtrack for this movie that I've heard a ton of times. So much so that I can even remember the parts of the song, like in this one especially, where they cut out some of the spoken lines that take place during the song, but not all of them. So I can still remember like, this is in there, this is not. (laughs) These songs really give the actors room to act in their singing. I think even more than previous Disney songs, you know, we love a lot of other Disney songs, but they are more of the classical style because that's what Walt liked of the other great Disney songs. These, you know, are Broadway numbers where they're like, we're really going to feature what actor. So like Pat Carroll here, you know, she gets to 
start off a little menacing and creepy, and then she gets to have, you know, so much more soul. But then now it's happened once or twice, someone couldn't pay the price, and I get to be a little sarcastic and wry. Like, just so many different tones. Um, and ending with her just, you know, screaming, it won't cost much, just your voice. Yeah. And flutz of jets of now I've got her boys. Yeah. The boss is on a roll. It's such a good, sing this song to yourself. You'll feel like good. You'll feel like you can do whatever. It's such a powerful song. So of course, the the important rules are she's going to get turned into a human and she has to get the kiss of true love from her prince before the sun sets on the third day. And her payment is her voice. It's amazing that we introduce, you know, this is kind of the main, like, finally our hero has, like, something she's trying to accomplish. It comes more than halfway through the movie. Yep. But the movie doesn't really feel rushed. Like, you'd think trying to pack kind of the main thrust of the plot into the last 40 minutes would feel rushed doesn't really. Yeah. And, of course, Ariel signs the contract and her voice is taken in a very cool scene. Very cool. Where she's singing... And then it's like hands that reach in and grab her voice. It's so creepy. Yeah, definitely unsettled me as a kid. Yeah. So, you know, but for the benefit of our listeners, in the new place I recently moved to, hung up some Disney posters. Some posters that have all the Disney princesses and several of the Disney villains. Yeah. Some very nice uh, posters purchased from a convention. So I don't think the mouse made any money off of it, which is just fine by me. (laughs) It's interesting looking at those posters, which show all the princesses in order. Ariel's the fourth princess. She is. It's so funny. More than two thirds of the official Disney princesses come after this movie. (laughs) It's so true. We're on the 28th movie in the canon and we've only gotten to the fourth princess. Everybody's like, oh, Disney's all just princess movies. Not yet. (laughs) But after this. Yes. Yes. (laughs) It's going to be princesses all the way down for a while. Again, I like this scene afterwards where Sebastian's like, well, obviously this is terrible and you're terrible for doing this. And he's talking about like, listen, give up on this whole stupid idea. Just go home and uh, and just be miserable for the rest of your life. Yeah. And I really appreciate that moment. And that is the first moment where I really kind of get Ariel's thing. Maybe not so much in terms of the little literal plot of the movie, but like as a broad metaphor for we all have those things where it's like, you know, if I do this, maybe I'm going against my parents, but like, this is what I feel I must do. This is universal emotions. uh, And you can read a lot into this metaphor. Well, and you could even look at it as just, this is the way I'm different from everybody else, you know? And you can't suppress that. Right. Maybe you just got to have legs. (laughs) We do see that Eric is longing for the girl who rescued him because he fell in love with her on first half sight because he couldn't see her very well because he was, you know, coming out of being drowned. And he did hear her singing a little bit. So he's been playing the song on his little flute and he is, you know, wishing for her. And then we see Scuttle uh, arriving to where Ariel is on the beach. And of course, he can't figure out what's different about her, which I always thought was 
you know, a dumb joke. <laughs> it is. This is annoying. He's so stupid. But I like how Ariel's face is so expressive here. As I said, this is where it really starts being so noticeable that even though she has no voice, you can tell what's going on in her head. They did a great job, the animators did. Right, and that's why you can't just give all the credit to like Howard Ashman on this movie. Obviously, he did so much good. Right. But the animation is so important. It is. So Scuttle gets her dressed in a uh, nasty old piece of sailcloth. (laughs) Um, But at least she's not naked when Eric and Max come wandering along the beach. Max, of course, the dog, smells Ariel and knows who she is. And is like barking and trying to let Eric know, but of course it doesn't work. (laughs) And let's just get this out of the way. Do not think about the fact that this is a presumably grown man who marries a 16 year old who he and falls in love with and marries a 16 year old who he doesn't talk to. Yes, it's weird. It's not ideal. Probably not how this story would be told now. Yeah. Just let the songs trick you into thinking it's not. Well, pretend he's he's probably only like 21 or so. So I doubt he's that much older than her. 16 and 21 is not ideal. No, but it's it's not extreme. But just I'm not I'm not going to say any more about it. It's just it's a little weird. It's not how I already said it. Yep. Yeah. So they go back to his palace or whatever. Ariel now has a very nice dress. We meet Carlotta, who is the housekeeper maid not maid she's more of a housekeeper like the the woman in charge of the palace so it starts with when they get back to the palace carlotta is bathing ariel and she says i'll just take this dress that you were wearing and get it washed and uh, sebastian was hiding in the fold of it like a pocket So he is in the laundry. He's trying to escape from the laundry. He eventually ends up in the kitchens, which it's like, you know, (gasps) horror show. Gives me a little bit of uh, vibes like in Brave Little Toaster where (laughs) the B-movie song. (laughs) A very innocuous thing from a human perspective is horrifying from a non-human perspective. Yeah, I see it. Yep. And Ariel gets dressed in a nice pink dress and is introduced again to Eric, all fancied up. And they just have a little conversation at first. And then we go back to the kitchen where the chef is singing Les Poissons, which I think this is my favorite scene in the movie. This is my favorite scene. It's so funny. I just love it. The song and the chase. Chef Louis. It is a classic Disney (laughs) short it is. Or, you know, almost even Looney Tunes, where it's like, all right, here's the bit. Deranged murderer versus small helpless thing. Right. And we grew up in a in a household that was partially Francophone because dad's fluent in French. And, yep. you know, my grandparents are fluent in French. But and thus my brother and I both studied French and can somewhat speak it and can, you know, at least convincingly speak certain words. But there's nothing funnier to me than doing a hilariously bad French accent. Yeah. (laughs) And that's the joke of this scene, even to the point where the song starts with him saying nonsense words. Yeah. Where he's just like, Maurice Chevalier. Oh, (laughs) which I'll be honest, I never caught that that's what he was saying. I only realized because we had the captions on when we were watching it the other night. He says, Nouvelle Cuisine, Les Champs-Élysées, Maurice Chevalier, Les Poissons, Les Poissons. And he sings to an audience of no one about how much he loves 
murdering fish. And cooking them. And then when he sees that there is, in fact, a crab, a live crab that he missed, he's so excited. Yes. There's just nothing Louis loves more in this entire life. Nothing that arouses his passion so... And Louis himself, hilarious character design. I love his mustache. (laughs) There's nothing he loves more than murdering fish, and nothing brings him more joy than the realization that he gets to murder a fish in this moment. (laughs) And then we play the can-can as Sebastian is running. Yes, and chasing all around the kitchen, and eventually... Carlotta comes in and the kitchen is completely destroyed. On a slightly less funny note, this is part of why I feel like I leave this movie going Triton was right about everything. Because, <laughs> yeah, as soon as you interact with the human world, one of your best friends is attempted murdered. Yep, yep, yep. OK, so hang on a second. I pulled up Chef Louie on the Disney wiki. First of all, he is described as Sebastian's arch enemy. Yeah. Which is very funny. Now uh, we pay off the Snarfblatt and Dinglehopper jokes with Ariel forking her hair and blowing uh, Grimsby's pipe, which, you know, all right, it's cute enough. What I really like is Eric laughing and the maid whose name I've forgotten once again going, Eric, that's the first Carlotta. time. Carlotta. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, uh, Coolotta says, Eric, that's the first time you've smiled. It like that much in a long time. Whatever, it's nice, it's cute. So you see that even though she can't speak, they are connecting, even though Eric is still like wishing for his beautiful singing dream girl. <laughs> so they make a plan that Eric's going to show Ariel around the kingdom. They do that the next day. We do see a brief scene, though, before that of King Triton searching everywhere for Ariel and he's super upset that she can't be found or Sebastian. And then we have the next day where Eric shows Ariel around the kingdom. Basically, here's Ariel interacting with human things in a silly way. And it's just a kind of a musical montage. Yeah, it's definitely a montage. All kinds of silly things go on. But the main thing that happens is at the end of the day, we have the romantic boat ride. Ariel's just kind of having fun. Yeah. Flounder and Sebastian are like, we got to get this kiss happening. Right. Or it's going to be incredibly bad. Yep. So this is where, once again, Sebastian. Well, okay. first, this is my favorite Scuttle joke. This one does crack me up, which is Scuttle goes, I'm going to sing to set the mood. Yeah. We need some vocal romantic stimulation. (laughs) It's just so funny to me. But then, of course, uh, he is put to death and Sebastian is <laughs> like, OK, maybe maybe I'll, I'm slightly better at putting together a song, you filthy rat bird. Yes, you and I also got a big laugh from him starting the song. So, you know, kind of seductively and then going, sing with me now. And then all the frogs going, sha la 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 my oh my. <laughs> Eric at first seems a little like, what's going on? What am I hearing? <laughs> and then he just kind of goes with it. <laughs> it's like a little weird. <laughs> they do it in the middle of the song, take a little break for him to figure out Ariel's name because Sebastian whispers it at him. <laughs> he kind of uh, is it's like how, you know, Timothy the mouse is able to whisper things to the ringmaster and he doesn't realize he's being told. Right. Except... Eric is awake. <laughs> well, in fairness, your first assumption wouldn't be a crab's talking to me. Right. Although, you know, as you say, Eric does seem to be somewhat aware that all the animals around him are singing, but he just thinks that's neat. I do like that to the extent Eric has character in this movie, 
It's just to be totally chill and unflappable. Yep. And they almost kiss, but Flotsam and Jetsam dump the boat before it can take place. And Ursula is like, I can't believe she almost did it. (laughs) She almost fulfilled her contract. Right. Can't let that happen. Ursula's got to take matters into her own tentacles. She is now going to have four limbs because she turns herself into a human. And we find this out because we find out Eric's getting married. and He's getting married to a woman named Vanessa, who's a human Ursula. And just as Eric is about to give up on his searching for his dream girl and, you know, settle for Ariel (laughs) because he really likes her. She shows up with uh, Ariel's voice, of course, and bewitches Eric. And so the next morning, Ariel's like, yay, everything's going well. And oh, no, he's marrying somebody else today. It is kind of nice that she doesn't realize it's Ursula at first. She just thinks that Eric has, has left her for someone else. But we eventually figure out what's up, I believe. Doesn't flounder. No, it's Scuttle, who's he doesn't realize he he's like, oh, you're getting married today. Huzzah. And then he flies off before he finds out it's not actually Ariel getting married. So he's come flying along to the wedding ship to see the wedding. And he's like, wait, this isn't Ariel. And he sees Vanessa looking at herself in the mirror and singing a little song. And he realizes her reflection is the sea witch. One thing I really like, by the way, is that because Ursula has stolen Ariel's voice, Jodie Benson gets to play Ursula for a little bit. Yeah. It's really fun to hear her doing villain stuff. I I wish she got to do it more, um, but it's a really enjoyable little just just her getting to sing the evil song and her getting to be catty like she could totally do it. She could play a villain. Flounder helps Ariel swim to the ship. Uh, Scuttle has got to stall the wedding and Sebastian is off to get the king. Because at this point, we, you know, we, we need some help <laughs> with the sea witch. <laughs> We've done all we can here. I do like Sebastian, you know, giving everyone their marching orders, though. Again, he's he's. He's a good he's a good leader of people. He's a good director. He's really letting his actors. He may be the littlest, but he is mighty. Yes. So he's like, I'm going to go get Triton. Ariel, you got to get kissed. Scuttle, you have to stall the wedding. Flounder, nobody cares about you. (laughs) Nobody, nobody, nobody at all. So uh, Scuttle, though, actually does a really good job getting everybody to help. uh, You know, all the other creatures to come help stall the wedding. It's a it's a hilarious scene where they're just all um, attacking Vanessa Yep, (laughs) and eventually manages to break the seashell that she's wearing around her neck that is holding Ariel's voice and Ariel's voice gets returned to her and Eric's the spell on Eric is broken and he realizes Ariel's the one he loved all along and he leans forward and they're about to kiss but Oh no, the sun set just in time. And Ariel turns back into a mermaid. So now Eric knows her secret. And Ursula's like, ha ha ha, you're too late. And she explodes out of her Vanessa disguise. (laughs) Yep. And grabs Ariel and swims back down into the ocean. And Eric's like, well, it's time to harpoon somebody. Yep. I'm a pretty chill guy. But I know when it's time for murder and that time has arrived. Yep. So he's grabs a harpoon and he's like, I am not going to lose her again and goes gets in a boat to try to chase after them. 
So as Ariel is being dragged back to Ursula's lair, I guess, uh, King Triton does show up. He tries to break the contract, but because it's a valid contract, he can't use his Triton to break it. The only thing he can do is substitute himself in Ariel's place. So she doesn't get turned up into a creepy weed. He does. And then Ursula gets the trident and the crown. And now she's going to be the ruler of the ocean, she thinks. This is when Eric then throws the harpoon at her and she's going to kill him. But Ariel manages to like pull her hair or something and get her aim off. And she accidentally kills Flotsam and Jetsam. She literally blows them up, which, you know, surprisingly graphic. Her poor little poopsies. <laughs> and she's like, well, I might as well become a sea god. Yep. So as Ariel and Eric are trying to swim away, she grows big. It is an amazing. I can see still how this shot scared me as a kid, like the crown rising out of the water and then her rising with it. And her voice <laughs> is, of course, yeah, pitch shifted now to be super deep. She's very scary and it's a cool action scene. And then she gets stabbed with a boat, which I noted is one of the only, if not the only times where, and I think this shows that it was like an Eisner edition because I don't think the animators would have done this, where specifically a hero kills a Disney villain. Because usually when a Disney villain dies, they have to go out of their way to be like, you know, oh, the dwarves were going to kill the queen, but then she got struck by lightning. Or, oh, sure, the Beast and uh, Gaston were fighting, but he lost his footing and felt like there's a lot of falling. Maleficent does actually get killed by Prince Philip. That's true. Well, that's one of the few times. You're right. That's a good point. And here again, and this obviously is very similar to Maleficent. You know, big transformation. Prince saves the day. Yep. Not as good, but still very good and cool. You could say that it's kind of Ursula's own fault because she does use the whirlpool to raise those shipwrecks from the bottom of the ocean that one of them then ends up being the one that stabs her. So then Ariel has, of course, rescued Eric again, and he's lying on the beach and she's sitting on a rock looking at him sadly. And her father is a little ways back. And I wrote down this exact dialogue, which is Sebastian goes, come on, man. And Triton goes, yeah, you're right. (laughs) This moment of her sitting on the rock is very much like the Little Mermaid statue that is in uh, Copenhagen, basically honoring the story of the Little Mermaid by Hans Christian Andersen. Interesting. Very, very similar pose. I feel like Triton lets Ariel be human in part because, you know, oh, I can tell this is my daughter, what my daughter really wants. And in part because, man, this is just the easiest way to deal with this. Like (laughs) (laughs) he turns her back into a human. His way is, you know, a lot less painful. And he actually creates a dress for her at the same time. So his way was better all along is what I'm trying to say. And then we have the classic, you know, Disney ending of like, everything's fine. Don't worry about it. Movie's over. Except we do have a brief moment of Louis trying to attack Sebastian again, which is quite funny. Well, and yes. Sebastian getting his own. Smashes out all of his teeth. <laughs> brutally maims him. And then he's like, thank you. Thank you. It's that classic like Looney Tunes violence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. So then we have the very beautiful ending and then the end credits where we get 
a reprise of Under the Sea. The last scene, by the way, with them sailing into the sunset is the one scene that was done in the CAPS program. Yes. Interesting uh, animation history, but uh, mm-hmm. doesn't seem to inha- make the scene better or worse one way or the other, far as I can tell. One thing we forgot to mention, by the way, Blu-ray transfer on this one is awful. Uh, it was very bad in some places. Makes it really hard to appreciate the movie if you're... The animation, specifically the visuals of the movie, if you're watching it on Disney+. Plus. So to be honest, maybe in the original version, the cap scene does look really different and cool. Uh, but in this awful, you know, what we talked about all throughout previous eras, especially the Silver Era, where it's all traced up and ugly and... The super weird facial expressions at times, because, you know, why would you want to preserve the character animation of The Little Mermaid? It's quite unfortunate. You know, it's not unfortunate is this movie, <laughs> which is good. And you know what is unfortunate is sequel spinoffs, remakes, rides and reboots. You can tell it was a good movie, a popular movie that made a lot of money because it's got a lot of sequels and spinoffs. Again, this was the most profitable movie of all time. And they actually, this was the first one that was released on home video uh, a mere six months after it came out in theaters. They'd released a few other Disney movies on home video, but only old ones. Little Mermaid is the one that convinces them, no, they all got to go on home video. Turns out there's a ton of money in that. (laughs) Little Mermaid 2, which I definitely watched as a kid, is the classic type of direct-to-video sequel that's just... What if their kids did the same movie, but worse? But in reverse. Yeah, in this case, uh, I think her name is Melody, is their daughter. She's a human who wants to be a mermaid. Pat Carroll plays the villain again, who's like Ursula's, some relative of Ursula. I didn't rewatch this one. Ursula's sister. There you go, Ursula's sister. She's skinny Ursula, but even still having it be literally played by Pat Carroll. And it's cheaper, it's worse, and it's even more annoying because it's like Ariel. You did this. You know right. that what you're doing is what happened to you and you didn't like it, but now you're doing it. It's dumb. I don't know why they don't move inland. Because <laughs> Eric loves, he loves two things, boat and flute. Yeah, that was in 2000, that movie. Yeah, and it's bad. And they also even do uh, part of your world again. Of course they do. I guess that's the only one they repeat, but... They, they have a song down to the sea that's like not quite under, <laughs> you know, it's like under the sea, but it's like down to the sea. Uh, it's bad. <laughs> There's also then insanely in 2008, there was a prequel. Yep. And so it's kind of like the Cinderella sequels where the second one is going to be your classic direct to video trash. And then for the third one, they're like, eh, what if we did something insane? The Little Mermaid Ariel's beginning. Yeah. Unlike Cinderella three, which is pretty fun. This one's just also very bad. Basically. So it starts with Ariel's mother, Queen Athena, who basically looks like Ariel And the intention here is to partially explain, like, why is Triton so much more attached to Ariel than his other daughters? Because she reminds him the most of her dead mom. Okay, that didn't need to be explained. And also, why is he so against the humans? Oh, because the mom was crushed by a boat. Also did not really need to be explained like you got it. Exactly. And because she was crushed by a boat while trying to find a music box he gave her... He does the only thing that makes sense, which is to outlaw music. (sighs) 
Yeah. I don't know. And then basically the little mermaid happens again and it's stupid. Like (laughs) it's mostly very boring. The one thing that's kind of uh, surprising about it is that Ariel dies in the end. And then Triton brings her back to life, which is apparently a power he has. I thought it was just one of those. She looks like she's dead, but she's not. But again, I didn't watch it. I mean, they don't say outright that, like, she's dead, but she looks like she's dead, dead. And then he specifically has to bring her back with magic. So I read that as he can bring the dead back to life. There is also a Broadway musical that was not particularly successful, but paved the way for the Lion King musical that we'll talk about. There was also somewhat recently... There was this Little Mermaid live thing. Yeah, TV special, 2019. Thank you, a TV special in 2019 where everyone was like, oh, just like all of these other live musical television specials, you're going to do the Broadway musical. Instead, it's this bizarre mix that's like doing a live dub of the original movie, doing a new play, and doing bits of the Broadway version. That's weird. Really bizarre. And and I only watched a little bit of it, but I feel safe and sane quite bad. <laughs> and that starred Moana herself, Auli Cravalho as Ariel, and Graham Phillips as Prince Eric, and Queen Latifah as Ursula, and Shaggy as Sebastian, and John Stamos as Chef Louis. <laughs> Very weird thing to exist. It was their attempt to do an NBC Live. It was also a uh, promotional push for Disney Plus. It's apparently on Disney Plus now, I believe. <laughs> it's bad. It's, it's uh, This should not have happened. Pretty crazy. And uh, also... So for the weird new staged live action segments, they had a flounder puppet. (laughs) I'm going to send you a picture of the flounder puppet. Ah! (laughs) What in the world? It's really bad. (laughs) That is so bad. And that is the main thing. Like, you know, this is the kind of thing they do to generate a lot of social media buzz. And they... You know, we're trying to make a lot of like, you know, like tweet live your reactions. And a lot of the reactions were stuff like I'm sending you a few pictures, but it looks like Flounder is having an existential crisis. (laughs) Flounder is going through it. Yes, he is. (laughs) The award for scariest puppet goes to you, Flounder. (laughs) The Flounder puppet was deaf one out of a claw machine five minutes before the performance. (laughs) I can believe it. I can believe it. It kind of looks like a bad Muppet. A little bit. Like there are Muppets that have a similar kind of fate. I encourage you just to Google Little Mermaid Live Flounder Puppet. We'll probably also post it on our Twitter if we remember. We'll change the (laughs) profile pic of the Twitter account to the Flounder Puppet. Oh, man. And there's going to be a Delarm that has already made a lot of people mad because the Little Mermaid is going to be black in it. That doesn't upset me in in the slightest. I don't think that should upset any reasonable person. I'm upset about it because it's going to be bad because all the Delarms are bad. And this one's directed. (laughs) We don't have to worry about it till 2023. (laughs) And this one's going to be directed by Rob Marshall, who, in my opinion, is an especially bad director. So it's it's might even be worse than most. 
maybe Ursula's just going to be a hyper-realistic CGI octopus. Like, why? <laughs> at this point, you might as well just push it to go as bad as possible. Like, bring back the flounder puppet, I say. <laughs> <laughs> no, make it a real wind-up flounder toy. There you go. Just as she, she loves human things. She's just talking to this wind-up <laughs> crazy oh i love it that's it that's the only i will only accept that also javier bardem is gonna play king triton super weird choice yeah super weird and melissa mccarthy is gonna be ursula which i see what they're going for there i don't think that's a great choice but i at least kind of followed the logic on that one you didn't mention though the uh, little mermaid animated series oh that yes was a little prequel TV series that um, started, it was from 1992 to 94. I think it was the first TV series spinoff for one of these Disney animated features. It was basically a Saturday morning cartoon show. I know we watched it occasionally when I was, I would have been in high school. Yep. So not watching Saturday morning cartoons all the time, but I had a, a younger sister who was still of the age to be watching them. And it was always, it's okay. <laughs> I got to tell you, my girlfriend loved this show, apparently, growing up. Because, you know, she she was a dumb kid. It was one <laughs> of the first things we watched together on Disney+. Plus. We watched one episode, th- or no, we watched two episodes, and then I was like, this is awful. And she was like, <laughs> yep, this is indeed awful if you watch it as an adult. Yeah. Uh, as I put it to you, they had half an episode's worth of ideas and then made three seasons. So it's just the plots are completely bizarre and stupid. And I don't think anybody cared about unlike the you know, we talked about the Winnie the Pooh show and how like the people behind that really had a specific vision. This yeah. was just like. Poop out 31 episodes. And they did. (laughs) Of course, there is a ride in the park, at least in the uh, Disneyland and Walt Disney World parks called Ariel's Undersea Adventure, which is a kind of a, you know, an indoor dark ride sort of thing, which I have ridden on. I don't know if you remember having ridden on it, but you have as well. It is interesting in that you pretend like you're, you know, sometimes under the water and sometimes above. But of course... You know, you're not really under the water, but they do some interesting effects, which the first time I wrote it was like, ooh, so cool. <laughs> they also tended to do various live shows at the parks of The Little Mermaid, which I remember seeing that, you know, even farther back. And of course, meet and greet for Ariel. And I know they do, you know, they'll have some of the characters and things in parades and all. But yes, you can definitely find Little Mermaid stuff. In the parks. Lin-Manuel Miranda says this is the movie that he saw as a kid that inspired him to get into composing music, which is why after he was a big success with Hamilton and he basically got to do whatever he wanted, he was like, I want to become a Disney guy, which he's basically done since. And he will be writing a new song for the Delarm because all the Delarms have to have one or two new songs. So they're technically eligible for Oscar consideration. And, then, mm-hmm. you know, he got to come full circle. He's composing music for the Little Mermaid. Sort of. <laughs> it is interesting. This movie definitely, I feel like, was was inspirational for a lot of people. And and I suppose it's time to uh, say then. Would we recommend this movie and will we show it to a child? I would say yes, I would definitely recommend this movie. And yes, I would show it to a child. 
depending on how scared they are of things, you know, maybe not a very small child. But my sister watched this movie over and over and over when she was she'd have been like seven or eight when we got the VHS. So she'd have been a little older. Yeah, it's an easy recommend, even though I do have my problems with it. I don't have the profound emotional connection to it that I know a lot of people do. But even still, I mean, you just can't deny these songs, this animation, the the fundamental, like primal emotions this story connects to. And of course, it's importance in history. It's it's uh what can I say? It's a Little Mermaid. You know, the Little Mermaid. You don't need us to yeah. recommend Little Mermaid to you. As far as a kid, I mean, I was traumatized by it, but I still turned out okay. So why not? <laughs> Freak out a kid, I say. I think it's okay for a kid to be occasionally freaked out by things. What's the worst that's going to happen? Nightmares <laughs> every night for a month. Child <laughs> coming into your room in the middle of the night. <sighs> We're not talking about what happens if you show them the flounder puppet right now. <laughs> what a treat. Are you, uh, I mean, how can you not be looking forward to the rest of the Renaissance era? Next up in the Renaissance era. I am looking forward. And, our, and next up for you to look forward to is 1990s The Rescuers Down Under, which we'll be covering next week. Mom, what do you think of this movie? Disney never does sequels. What? <laughs> 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 Oh boy, they sure don't. Uh, so tune in <laughs> next time for the only Disney sequel ever in any of their franchises. And until <laughs> then, I'm me. I'm Mom. And it all started with a mouse. <laughs> <laughs>